Well, hello there. It is good to see you again, and welcome back to Your Money and a Cup of Joe. I'm your host, Ryan Ruff. It is good to be back with you here today. And as always, I'll have my right-hand man, star of our show, Mr. Joe Kaleo, over at UBS joining me. And we're going to be diving into another wealth management discussion, as we typically do on the show. But today is a special show. We've got a really great guest joining us, and that's Mr. Joshua Sutton. Josh being a tax and ERISA attorney, as well as a shareholder over at Chamberlain Herlica Attorneys at Law. Very excited to be jumping into a really, really great conversation. A lot of value that's going to be packed in today's discussion. Uh, we'll frame that up in just a moment. But first, I want to bring Joe out, say hi to him, and we'll introduce you to Josh in a moment. Joe, good to see you. How are you doing this morning, sir? Ryan, doing great. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Glad Josh is here. I've known and worked with Josh for a long time, and now we get to introduce the world to Josh. So let's yeah. do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Josh, appreciate you carving some time out of your day to jump on board. Uh, really a big conversation ahead of us. But uh, why don't you, Josh, introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background before we get into the uh, the topic at hand here today. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, uh, Joe. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'm a tax and ERISA attorney, uh, which really means I help employers uh, with their employee benefit plans. Uh, and that goes from qualified retirement plans to non-qualified deferred compensation to welfare plans. Uh, so I am typically working with HR or decision makers around their retirement plans. And, and how do we keep these plans in compliance and make sure that we're not having to have the IRS or the DOL knock on our door um, and what I'm even more worried about are participant lawsuits uh, and, and things of that nature. So my job is to worry about my clients and their benefit plans and tell them what I would do to make them run really efficiently and, and with care to avoid liability. But I'm more of an entrepreneur, really, to have a great employee benefit plan that really works We'll retain employees, we'll, we'll keep them uh, happy, and, and then their seat's working. So we work a lot with businesses to make them better businesses. Love that. And obviously, a lot of the conversations we have on this show are designed around the business owner, reinforcing, re-improving, you know, improving their wealth plans or even the business itself. So we're really excited to have you with us today, Josh. And yeah, of course. Uh, gentlemen, to frame up today's conversation for our audience, you know, as 2022 drew to a close, Congress had passed new legislation that is going to impact and then, of course, entice a lot of employers out there to tweak maybe their current retirement plans that they have in place for their employees. So over the next two episodes on this show, we're fortunate enough to have Josh standing by with us. And we're going to be looking at some of the provisions of, uh, the, you know, that individuals, employers, and then employees, of course, and even company leaders will want to be knowing about how Secure Act 2.0 impacts these retirement plans. So, you know, we, we appreciate Josh being here. We'll lean on Joe's, you know, guidance as well. Let's frame things up start high level gentlemen joe i'll throw this first question to you joe why did congress even enact secure 2.0 in the first place set the scene for us if you will yeah ryan one of the things that congress has heard we've heard both josh and i is employers who don't have a retirement plan have been afraid to start one or always talk about the startup costs and that is the initial hiccup or hurdle that prevents employers from having a retirement plan. And it's estimated as much as 50% of all American work 
workers don't have access to a company or employer-sponsored retirement plan. So Congress has heard that, but they want more employees to have access to do it. So since many employers don't have a plan and they say it costs them too much, and Congress has heard this for years, they're trying to put some provisions in place to make it easier to help reduce the cost of implementation and to make things easier for employees to have something throughout their retirement. Josh, what are your thoughts? What are you hearing? What are some of the provisions you've liked out of all this? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, Joe. And and uh, I think where Congress really focuses on what I will call small employers. So uh, where they are giving money to employers in form of a credit is if you're under 50 or fewer employees. So I would think about that is, is really make sure you're under 50 fewer employees. And I wouldn't just look at eligible participants. I'd look at your full employee count. And I'd even worry about what do we do with part-time employees? How do they count? But if you're clearly under 50 and fewer employees, uh, there's been a credit around for a while and Secure 2.0 just enhanced it. So you can get up to $5,000 uh, per year for three years uh, for startup costs. So it's got to be a new plan um, and uh, and for ongoing administrative costs. So $15,000 over three years is a credit great for our small employers, and it is to induce in more, more retirement savings. So you, you're hitting it on the head. And two others quickly, Joe, come to mind is that same credit is available. So if you don't want to start your own plan, uh, if you're still a small employer and you want to join, uh, join what we call a MEP or now a PEP, so multiple employer plan and a pooled employer plan, uh, which really just means it's a lot of separate employers coming together to try to reduce costs. Well, if you join one of those and they're the proper kind and, and you meet the requirements, you can get that same credit over three years. And it's actually retroactive. All of these credits are right now available immediately, but that join, they're really pushing MEPs and PEPs out of this legislation, honestly, is what I found. Uh, because of the standing and, and some other things that Secure 2.0 did. And then the third is really a tiny one that people may not have heard about, and that is uh, military spouses. So if you're a veteran benefit kind of oriented business or not, I would encourage you to look at, again, they're all optional, so you got to kind of look at it and implement it and put it into your plan. Uh, but for non-highly compensated military spouses, you can get up to $500 uh, if you do certain things and give those people retirement. And I, so I kind of like this little piecemeal, but my high level picture, Joe, is I don't think they did enough for the little guys. Um, and I think they did more overall in Secure 2.0 for the big guys, um, which is not a judgment one way or the other, but um, I would like to have seen them try to do more to get our rank and file, let's so to say, um, or non-highly compensated employees more benefits. Um, and, and they did some, so so we're on the right path, but I'm voting for a secure 3.0. Um, and I think the reason we got 1.0 and 2.0 and potentially a 3.0 is that this is a bipartisan issue. We're all together on this one. Um, and so I think there's some hope there for, for working that out. 
Yeah, Keep going. yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Three really interesting avenues you explored there, Josh, and, and we'll dive deeper, obviously. Uh, Josh, I'll throw the next question kind of right back at you. The provisions, though, take effect here in 2023, and some of them including, you know, raising the age for RMDs or required, you know, minimum distributions, and reducing some of the penalties for not taking them in time. Talk me through your thoughts on this, and what does this look like for, for those at Impacts? Yeah, good one, Ryan. It does. This is mandatory and it's hitting us right now. So, um, and our plans language, which we have a fiduciary duty to follow our plan documents, don't reflect what the law actually is, but we're required to file that law, even though our plans don't quite say it yet. So need to think about keeping our plans up to date and when do we amend to catch up now for Secure 2.0? And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but they did. We you, just a little bit of history. If you reached way back, which is just before Secure 2 1.0, when you reach 70 and a half uh, under normal circumstances in a benefit plan and were probably retired, you had to take a required minimum distribution each year that's taxable income. And people didn't like that. They wanted to keep it in the plan. They didn't want taxable income. And Secure Point 1, 1.0 turned it from 70 and a half to 72, which is where we are until January 1st of this year, it's now 73. And over about the next 10 years, it's going to go up to 74 and 75. So I think that's good because we're living longer and I think we want that money to stay in the plan and grow. And I want to talk, let Joe talk on that part. Uh, but the last little bit to me is that there is actually a technical fault in the statute. So if you really look at it, people who are turning like 74 and 75 in those years that Secure Act ratchets up, it, the math doesn't work. So I think you'll see a technical correction around that. But the, the good news I would tell people is like, don't worry, by then we'll have it figured out and, and just know that if you're on, you know, at getting close to 73, 74, 75 over the next decade, pay attention and, and when that starts to happen. Joe, what's your thoughts? Yeah, Josh, you talked about technical correction, right? One of the things that we've dealt with, or a couple of things I think that this has come about is because as people are getting older and living longer, we need their money to, to last longer as well. And so the required minimum distribution is that minimum speed, as I like to describe to clients, is it has to come out at least this fast. You can pull it out faster, but the government says it has to come out at least this fast. So they've raised the age in which that minimum distribution has to start. In the past, the penalty was 50%. If you miss taking the RMD, up to 50% of that distribution could have been penalized. Now it's down to 25%. And under extenuating circumstances, you might be able to say the penalty should only be 10%. Won't go through all of those, but I would say seek a tax advisor like your CPA about what that could be if that's in effect. But, you know, Josh, I think one of the things, and Ryan, we ought to mention that there's a new twist, which I think trued things up. Roth IRAs have never had an RMD, that required minimum distribution, but Roth 401ks did. Now, that is gone. So if you have a Roth 401k account, it can stay in there basically forever without ever having to be pulled out. But as long as it's been in there five years or longer and you're older than 59 and a half, 
that distribution is tax-free. So that stays in effect. Yeah, Joe, I think two great points. And my only add is very pro-participant, to your point, very pro-retirement and saving longer uh, for, for the very reasons you stated. And so, Josh, there's also been provisions in the past that allowed IRA distributions to go to charities. I know charitable intent, that's a big focal you know, topic that we hit on this show in a lot of different ways. How did you see Congress address uh, the qualified charitable distributions on this front? Yeah, this was, again, they, they really cemented something that had been kind of here and there and jumping around. So they, they did, they cemented one thing and gave us new charitable techniques with IR, our, our IRAs. And I like it. Again, very pro-participant um, if you're charitably inclined. So the first one, um, and, and let's walk through this real quick. If I just take a distribution from my IRA for $100,000, I'm going to get taxed on that as ordinary income at my bracket. And let's just peg that at 25% effective rate. Um, well, that's, you know, 25% going to the government and, and then 75% going to the charity if I break it out. Otherwise, I'm really doing 125%, uh, you know, uh, expense. And then when I give it to charity, I get a deduction, but that deduction's below the line. So it's at my bracket. I only get 25 cents on the dollar for the deduction. So very tax inefficient to, to use your IRA as a charitable deduction. And Congress came in historically and said, if you give directly, you get no income tax. So, hey, good, you know, solving my RMD, because we can only do this if you're in RMD mode. Um, but uh, no income, so I don't want to pay any tax. But I also don't get a deduction. It's allowed to go straight to the charity. I don't get a charitable. So you don't double dip. You kind of, you, you sacrifice one for the other. And if you're charitably inclined, it's tax efficient. So we like this. Um, it can be done annually up to 100,000. And that starts this year to index. So over time, that will grow. Uh, and you can do that every year. And I, I like it. The second that they brought in is a one-time up to 50,000 starts next year. So you have time to think about it. Um, again, these are optional. These are things you can do if you want. Um, you can set aside 50,000 into what we call a split interest entity. And we use that term because it's part personal to the person who sets it up and it's part charitable, split interests. Uh, the most common um, are charitable remainder trusts or charitable remainder unit trusts, CRATs, CRUTs, CLATs. Uh, and Congress has allowed um, CRUTs, CRATs, and gift annuities. So you could take $50,000, uh, get it out of your estate somewhat. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, estate planning, Joe, a different, different podcast. Uh, but it allows for an annuity to come back to you over a period of time. And then at the end of that annuity, whatever's left over goes to charity. Uh, so another unique uh, kind of expanding, actually, uh, uh, more charitable techniques that we use quite a bit in estate planning uh, have opened up for IRAs to fund. And I do think that that's interesting. I, I tend to think it's a little small. And, and so for the burden of doing all that planning, I worry that the, the kind of the cost of it all kind of defeats 
because it's just at 50,000. And, and I think that most people will just go back up to my first 100,000 each year and, and give directly or, or take part that they want as that annuity, so, so to speak. And then the rest they send to charity. So I I think this is one that was a good idea, but I wonder how much it'll get utilized. Joe, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I wonder that as well, Josh. And I think it's one of those that we'll have conversations with clients about over time just to see what their interest is. I know one of the questions I'll get, which I know I'm glad we've already got an answer, is can I send this to a donor advised fund or a private foundation? Unfortunately, the answer for them is no. But the good news is, it will it be indexed for inflation? I think that was one of the questions that I will also get asked, and I often have been asked, at least in the past. You know, will this be indexed for inflation? And the answer is yes, or it's supposed to be. So we'll keep our eye on that as well. That is correct. Yes, sir. Gentlemen, RMDs and these QCDs deal with money going out in retirement, but I want to talk about the savings for retirement. Now, Josh, in your eyes, the secure act is you're seeing that it is increasing the amount of contribution limits. Talk about where these limits have been increased and what the limits actually look like now. Yeah, they, we got a few here. So it's interesting. First with IRA starting in 2024. So you got to wait until next year. Um, the catch up contribution, if you're over 50, will increase up to $1,000, so from 500 to 1,000. So we like that. Um, and, and people who are saving, here you go. I would use that and push and, uh, to more aside every year as much as possible. Uh, in 2025, so, so a few little bit further out, uh, in, my, in, in all my, my qualified plans, 401k and et cetera, once you get to 60, we get a unique new kind of catch-up contribution. Um, and um, the idea is that um, it goes from 60 to 63, and it's the greater of $10,000 or, bear with me, everybody, 150% of the 2024 catch-up number. So we'll have to wait a little bit to figure out what that is, but let's just do an example. If it's 7,500, 150% of that, 7,500 2024 catch up um, would be 11,250 if Joe's math is right. And uh, if that's the case, then you would get 11,250 in catch up, you know, in that year. And that's a pretty good chunk uh, that above and beyond your regular, as you're starting to, you know, you're 60 to 63, you're kind of in that final maybe a phase of getting building for retirement, you could sock away a pretty good amount. So um, yeah, I have to say, I like it. Um, um, I, and Joe, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Josh, I think the thing that I know I'll need to do when we go out and do education for retirement plans or investment committees, or even HR staff, is that the twist is going to be anybody over, at least in the next year, 145,000 essentially very close to that highly compensated level. If someone's highly compensated or close to it, it will, that'll probably be indexed, I suspect, each year as well. Yes, that catch-up provision will then be forced to be in the Roth 401k bucket. So some participants in the past were doing pre-tax. Now that catch-up is going to be in the Roth bucket. 
And and one of the things, Ryan, that we often get asked is, don't I make too much to contribute to a Roth 401k? The answer is no. You can make a million dollars. You can make $10 million if you have a plan and your plan, plan passes the government-mandated discrimination tests. Anyone can contribute to a Roth 401k. There are income limitations to contribute to a Roth IRA. So as long as you can contribute and you have Roth 401k in your plan and your plan's passing those tests, you can contribute. And now if you're over 145,000, the catch-up's going to be in the Roth 401k side of things. Yeah, Joe, a couple of points, if you don't mind. Uh, one Go. is, um, you know, I, I like it. I'm a big Roth person because grows tax-free and comes out tax-free. And so if you pay your tax now, and we could talk about brackets when you're now versus brackets when you retire, but just that growth and out free tax free is so tax positive in my mind. I'm pro Roth. So let me put that out there. But what's happened, Congress is saying is, okay, if you make a lot of money over 145 and you do these catch ups, you got to pay the tax now. And so I think it's a revenue generator is maybe what they were thinking. But if you really think about it, we're yep. giving to the people who make a lot of money, a, a really a bigger benefit right? Like they're actually forcing those wealthier people to get what I think will be a better benefit overall and less tax revenue to the government over time. So I've heard some articles say that Secure 2.0 kind of was, again, you know, giving away a lot to the people who make more money versus to the little guy. And again, I don't want to get political. I'm not sure I'm made a decision one way or the other in my mind. But this was one where I was like, you know, I'd like to know why they did that. So that that's one. Two, this section of Secure 2.0 uh, deletes by mistake 402G of the code. And I'm sorry to speak code, but 402G of the code is what allows salary deferrals. And 402 cap A is where we get Roth deferrals, and that code section also needs 402G of the code, and they wiped it out. So in 2024, so we're good this year, but in 2024, if they don't fix it, there will be no salary deferrals permitted under all of our qualified plans. So it's a huge glitch that uh, trade groups have pointed out, Treasury's on it, and, and this will have to be fixed. Uh, it is a true going to need a technical correction. Uh, so don't worry, I don't think it's ever going to actually be a problem, but I, I thought this is interesting, again, that they weren't quite thinking through it all the way, and this got a little bit of sausage making as it came out. One of the oh, unintended so consequences of the sausage, right, I, ultimately? I'm guessing, but that you, I, you're a better political judge than I am, as we well, uh, know. I don't know about that. I think you're right, Josh. I think they're going to have to fix it because the whole intent was – to get more people to be able to save for retirement and those that are trying to save to save more, right? It was never intended for Social Security to be the be end all of retirement planning. And they want employees to be able to become participants and participants to be able to be self-sufficient. And that's what the whole point, like you said, Josh, we had Secure One and now Secure 2.0. Congress is trying to come together to make this happen. So I I'm confident they'll have some fixes along the way. Yeah, yeah, that'll be positive. Again, at all, if it's all for savings, I don't care how much money you make. We all right. should be saving and as much yep. as you possibly can. So, so anything Congress does to increase 
and to make our retirement plans better, I'm all for. Um, I worry a little bit about the complexity it puts on my employers, uh, Joe, and, and I think that's where our vendors like you have to help our employers and myself, another vendor to plans, have to really help our plans kind of wade through that that complexity and, and kind of say, this is what you need to do and, and why we think this is the right way to go. Uh, and, and education like this is a huge part of it. Agreed. G gentlemen, switching gears to two words that have drawn a ton of discussion over the last few years, and that's student loans. Uh, when we look at this area and how Secure, uh, you know, Secure Act 2.0 impacts them, I mean, it, so employees that are looking to pay off student loans thought that they had to make a choice of paying their student loans or contributing the that amount to their retirement plan but now they're able to get you know the company contributions as well to help on this front walk us through how this works josh yeah you know i joe i think we've talked about this before i was very lucky probably about 10 years ago give or take uh, I got to work with an austin client that that came to me with this very thing they said look these kids coming out of school have a ton of student loans. I need them. I want to hire them. If I could provide a benefit where if they pay their student loans and they prove to me that they're paying their student loans, I'll act as if they were making a contribution to the 401k plan. And by doing that, they can get a match. So I can actually act as if you go pay your debt down because they're so worried about their debt, they're not saving. So let's do both and let's set up a program where you go pay your debt and I as an employer will match it. What a great employee benefit, right? Like that that's, and, and in a market like we have now where employment, you know, there, there's a lot of jobs and not enough employees, these kind of benefits can make the difference. Um, and so over those 10 years, um, you know, I was the worrier lawyer. And so I kept saying, well, I'm worried about this and this from Marissa and code, and we don't have this. And, and then some other smarter lawyers finally took it and went to the IRS and got a private letter ruling that said, hey, you, yeah, you can do this. But of course, it was one of my big, big employers that could pay big, big lawyers to go into IRS and get these. So, but I was like, great. And, uh, but hard to take something like that. It's very complex unless the rest of the industry doesn't buy in. So it was not a lot of vendors out there were really excited about trying to figure this out. And, and I think there are vendors out there. So so want to be fair, it, it has been gaining momentum, but this Secure 2.0 really kind of paved the way. Um, and so I do think that you will see because of all the things we've talked about and how big student debt is, like you said, Ryan, uh, that employers are going to take this and I think use it. So that's good news. I think the operational complexity will be, uh, again, Joe, like I said before, we're going to have to help employers with that and it'll take plan amendments, all these things that are optional. So again, this starts in 2024, it is optional, but if an employer wants to do it, then we got to figure it out and do a plan amendment and get this going for you. And then treasury is going to put out more on it and they're probably going to give us plan guidance. So um, unfortunately I think my employers are going to wait and, and it's going to take a little bit of time. Joe, what's where, where your head on this? 
Well, I think, you know, a lot of companies had private letter ruling envy, if I dare say, when they had gotten word that someone, right? And I think this basically was born out of the Xerox plan. It's the most commonly quoted plan that had gotten this ruling. And then others wanted it, and the IRS said, no, no, no. And so Congress said, we'll give it to everybody. And so it's not supposed to start until after the end of 23 into the beginning of 24. But I think you're right. There's a bunch of plans that will have to sweep up on the employer side, which we'll actually go into a little bit more in the next podcast. But I think there are a bunch of things that employers are going to want to adopt. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of them. The question then is, how do they put this into effect? And that's going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely, gentlemen. And and as we kind of bring our conversation to a head here, uh, final question before we wrap up here in part one, as Joe just mentioned, we're really alluding to, you know, more of the employee side of things here with the Secure Act 2.0 changes. We'll get in to employers here in part two. Uh, but gentlemen, final question here. And Joe, I'll throw this one over to you to, to kind of kickstart the thought here. There have been a lot of changes to 529 plans and which again are used for college or higher education so now participants can be moving you know that those funds towards their roth talk to me about what this means and the repercussions here how it works you know the the, the whole nine yards if you will ryan a 529 like you mentioned right is designed for college it's after tax going in no taxes while it's growing tax-free when it comes out, if used for higher education, college, trade school, right? Generally for tuition, the rules have expanded as to what it can go for, including computers and materials. So good news there. Roth, after tax going in, no taxes while it's growing, tax-free if used in retirement. And in numerous conversations with parents, well, you know, I've got money for one, but not both. What do I choose? And so many would side on the chance of giving their kids college. But then if they had anything left over, what are my options then? And then do I have to pull it out? And then can I put it in here? And so I think wisely, Congress looked at this and saying, look, this is helping an everyday American. This is helping middle-class America by saying, save money for your kid's college. And if there's anything left over, it can now become your Roth. Mm -hmm. And this is great because now they don't have to choose first goal, first college, second goal, second retirement. And if there's something left over, it's for retirement. If not, you used up everything for college. But I think this is a win-win for so many people. Josh, what are your thoughts? 529 is uh, like a Roth a win-win you you grow tax-free and if used properly comes out tax-free so when you're talking to a tax lawyer and i get that kind of a benefit it's a no-brainer uh and you're absolutely right joe i i would really push people to fund both if they can uh but um i like that congress opened this up uh and and you know hsas by the way are very similar um, and and they did that. So this was a just like the next very smart transition made sense to me. 
Well, gentlemen, this has been a great conversation. You know, we took a deep dive into kind of how the employees themselves are impacted by the changes we've seen here in Secure Act 2.0. Uh, Josh, I know we've got you for part two. We're going to dive into some of the other, uh, the employer's repercussions, what that means for a lot of businesses out there and how they need to kind of shift things and ebb and flow with the changes. But uh, really appreciate you guys both carving some time out of your day to jump aboard and uh, looking forward to, to jumping into part two with you here in a moment. Uh, Ryan, you're such a gentleman. Thank you. Appreciate Cheers, it. Ryan. Cheers as always, guys. And hey, look, we want to say a final thank you to our audience for jumping aboard and spending some time with us here today. If you did benefit from today's discussion, you took a thing or two away, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whichever platform you checked us out on. That way you never miss out on another great conversation between Joe, myself, Josh, maybe another guest that we have here on the show where we unpack a new wealth management topic and hope to provide value to you in your financial world. Before Joe, for Josh, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on Your Money and a Cup of Joe. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services Incorporated. UBS Financial Services Incorporated does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. This material is made available for use by CEG. Neither UBS Financial Services Incorporated nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC registered broker dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services Incorporated is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC. Joe Kaleo at Kaleo Wealth Management Group, UBS Financial Services Incorporated, office address 200 West Highway 6, Suite 400 in Waco, Texas, 76712.